0: These kids are. <clears throat> These kids are pretty smart. My dad used to tell me I was the flower of our family. He said I was a blooming idiot. <laughs> 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 the older I get, the more I think he's right. <laughs> So, as the children were sharing with us this morning, we're going to start off from John chapter 15, and it tells us that God is the gardener, Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches. And he starts off with a very serious statement here. He says that every branch in him that bears no fruit is cut off. you remember right around the time of the triumphal entry Jesus was on his way from Bethany into Jerusalem Uh, Mark says it was the day after and as he was walking along he he saw a fig tree that had leaves on it and he was hungry so he went over to the fig tree (coughs) to get some figs and there was no fruit so he cursed the fig tree and um, find this in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. Next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. So this tree was cursed. Now what's going to happen is this tree is going to wither from the roots and it's not going to take long. Um, The next day, as a matter of fact. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus curses the fig tree because it was supposed to have fruit on it. Uh, Mark says it wasn't the season of figs, but the, the way those fig trees are is the figs usually come out about the same time as the leaves. So if you see on that type of fig. So if you see the leaves, then you should expect to find some fruit. It has the appearance of being a fruitful tree. But when he got there, there was none. So immediately in Mark's gospel, this is when Jesus goes to the temple and he begins to cleanse the temple. And he, takes a, he makes a whip and he drives out uh, the money changers, overturns the tables, sets the sacrificial animals free and lets them go. And these are going to be the people who within a week will be crying out for him to be crucified. And then the next day in Mark's gospel, chapter 11, verse 20. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. So you've got the, the cleansing of the temple sandwiched between the curse and the death. That's there. He goes to the temple expecting the fruit from God's kingdom and he finds none. So the curse is on those who give the appearance of being fruitful, but in reality, they are not. And this is what John is talking about in John 15. Every tree in me, Jesus says, that bears no fruit is cut off. So it's a pretty, pretty uh, sobering thing that he starts off this gospel with, uh, this chapter in John chapter 15. And he continues and he says, okay, so that's the ones that bear no fruit. But then he goes on and says, even if you're bearing fruit, he's going to prune it, prune that vine um, to make it even more fruitful. The word for pruning there actually means he's going to cleanse it, purge it. Um, And as as Luke was sharing this morning, for the tree it probably wasn't a pleasant experience being hacked on. Uh, and yet, what happens is, it makes it a better tree. Stronger, healthier, more beautiful, more productive. So what happens is, you prune branches that have grown too far from the roots, and the farther away from the, fruit, from the roots, the harder the tree has to work, and the smaller the fruit. So uh, when you you prune it, it gets it back, it becomes more productive, it it fills out more, and it becomes a better tree. So Jesus is the one who's doing the cleansing and the purging here. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah is talking about Israel, people of God, uh, in the form of a vineyard. And the whole chapter talks about it. I just want to point out a couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 5. I'm we'll to look at uh, verse 2. Uh, we'll back up to verse 1. I will sing to, for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. Now, John's already told us that the gardener was God. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. So that was the problem. Uh, Wasn't anything wrong with what he had he had planted? He had everything prepared, everything was ready. But the grapes turned out to be bad grapes, bad fruit. And what happens is that when that happens um, is when God works within our hearts and within our lives, the goal, His desire is to send His Holy Spirit into our hearts and lives, producing good fruit, fruit for the kingdom. Uh, There's two different aspects to that. One is what He does within us. We call it the fruit of the Spirit when when the Holy Spirit is at work within us as Christians, producing the fruit of the Spirit are the results, the evidences of the Spirit in our heart and in our life. He's forming the life of Christ in us. And so he tells us, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, kindness, and self-control. There's nine of them. And he says, these are the things that the Holy Spirit is producing in us in increasing measure. The other part of the productivity or the fruitfulness is that through our witness and through our lives other people will be brought into the kingdom. The evangelism part or missions part where other people are being brought into the kingdom. So that's the, that's the analogy that's being used here and Isaiah says God plants Israel, the people of God, in a, a place prepared especially for them. It's ready for them. He puts them there. They're his people he's revealed himself to them he's created them as a people he's protected them guarded them provided for them and so he goes to them and he looks for fruit and instead he gets wild grapes grapes that aren't good for anything and so this is part of what's going on in John 15 every branch that produces fruit it's pruned it's cut. It's, it's, he's working with us to make us productive in bearing good fruit. So what about us uh, uh, as God's people, as part of the, the vineyard of the Lord in the sense that we have been connected with Him? What kind of fruit is in your life and mine? Is it the fruit of the Spirit, the good grapes, the good fruit that He's looking for in our life, or is he finding wild grapes in us as his people? Isaiah was talking about God's people. Jesus is talking to his disciples here in John 15. So he's going to, to cleanse and to purge, to deal with them, to make them more productive, more effective in God's kingdom. And it's for the benefit, for the health, of those being worked on. Now later on in Isaiah chapter five, he continues in verse six. And he's talking about what he's going to do to the vineyard when it brings forth wild grapes. He said, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland neither pruned nor cultivated and briars and thorns will grow there. So he's saying that what happens is when God's judgment comes, uh, the land becomes a wasteland, neither cultivated nor pruned. In John 15, uh, Jesus is not willing to let us become a wasteland again. So what he does uh, is that's why the pruning is an act of his love and an act of grace. It's because he loves us and because he cares for us. So, the problem is, even in our lives as Christian people, we allow things to continue in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, the, I guess the uh, appropriate word is addictions, maybe. Uh, we call them habits. Uh, bad habits. And it's not just things that we do. It's things that, ways of thinking, patterns of thought, things that motivate us. Um, psychologically, they would call them. These are things that are, that trigger certain responses in us. It can be an emotional thing. It can be um, a verbal thing. It can be just a, a a mindset that we have in our hearts and in our minds. Ways of thinking and processing. Uh, we can give clinical names to it. We can we can call it uh, aggression. We can call it um, dependency. We can call it um, depression, all kinds of different names, greed, lust. Um, these are things that come out of the heart and mind of a person. And it's ways that we have, are thinking and responding and dealing with things around us. And for the most part, uh, many of those things are negative. So these are the things that God is working on because... Too often in our lives, because these things are pleasing to us, or we're familiar with them at least, we encourage the very things that will ruin us. And because that is what we are and what we do, we need an expert correction and discipline in order to refocus on something that is more life-producing, within ourselves and with other people. And so God steps in, in the hearts of his children, people who are connected to the vine, and he begins to work within our hearts and within our lives this pruning activity. So what does this pruning activity look like? In Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us, verses 1 through 13, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's just given us chapter 11, which is that great catalog of the faithful ones in the Old Testament. So he's given us lots of examples there in chapter 11. And he tells us these are a great cloud of witnesses giving testimony, uh, bearing witness to the faithfulness of God in dealing with us. And he's got all of these people who have gone before us that are telling us, look at their lives and see the changes which God did in them and the fruit that it produced in their lives. And so he's saying we've got all of these examples, this great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles. Um, We used to call this a long time ago besetting sins, sins that beset us, uh, habits. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God... Disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So God is working within us. Um, He's working within us this pruning process, the discipline of correcting, rebuking, challenging, changing, cleansing, purifying, making us more productive and better people in the process, more and more into the image of Christ. And that's the work, that's the work of grace. Sometimes when we say the word grace, we think that means I have a free ride. It doesn't. It means that God is going to be graciously pruning, (laughs) disciplining, guiding, directing us into the the ways that lead to peace and righteousness. So that's what God's doing, working within us. So he says we fix our eyes upon Jesus. And he says this word endured twice about Jesus and once for us. In chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 2, it says, Look at Jesus who endured the cross and consider him in verse 3 who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we won't grow weary and lose heart. And then in verse 7, he uses the same word talking to you and I that he used to talk about Jesus. He says to you and I, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating us as sons. So this word endure means to remain or stay behind while others go away. It means to remain instead of running away, to stand one's ground, to hold out, to endure in trouble. Perseverance is another word for it. Um, To endure in trouble, in affliction, in persecution. It means to wait for someone. So the Old Testament tells us not to follow the crowd in doing wrong. We are to stay faithful when everybody else isn't. Uh, you remember the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was there with the disciples and then they came during the middle, early, early morning uh, after midnight. In the darkest time of the night, the disciples were asleep and all of a sudden these guys show up with torches and spears and swords and, Kind of a, a a rabble, mob type of thing that grew that was there, and when the dust had settled, you had the mob and who else? Who else was left? The mob was there. Who was with them? Jesus, Jesus. and of the disciples in there? None. They all ran. This is what the word means endured he stayed out of obedience to the Lord out of his love for you and for me knowing what was coming the crucifixion and the beatings and all the other things knowing that was coming he endured he stayed everybody else ran away so what Jesus was saying in John 15 and what the writer to the book of Hebrews is saying we are standing firm in the commitments in which we've made And that means that we are walking in active obedience to what we know to be true. It's more than just the mental thing. The disciples knew what they should do. That wasn't the problem, was it? And they had made commitments. Just a couple of hours before, Peter stands up and he says, Lord, though everyone else deserts you and flees, I will not. And it says all the other disciples said the same thing. But when the crisis came, when it got very difficult, when it proved costly and they all fled, Jesus didn't. He endured. He remained when everybody else ran away. In Isaiah chapter 50, one of the servant passages in the Old Testament, Speaking about, uh, I think you're talking about Jesus here, starting with verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. Those who are rebellious are those who draw back They're rebelling from what they know to be the truth. Jesus said, I have not drawn back. He endured. He stood firm. Um, And because of that, then he received the revelations or he was able to be the vehicle through what God was doing in and through him. So um, most of us want to understand Not too many of us want to obey. We want to understand, but we don't want to obey. But we'll never really understand until the obedience becomes a fact in our lives. So the writer of Hebrews is telling us that we need to endure hardship as discipline. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul writing to the church at Philippi, he's been talking about losing everything for the sake of Christ. And he says that, was no, that wasn't a great deal for him because he realizes the value Of what Christ has offered to him and so he says in verse 8 well let's back up to verse 7 whatever was to my profit my benefit I now consider loss for the sake of Christ what is more I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things I consider them rubbish What Jesus is talking about in John 15, the pruning, and what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, the discipline that's taking place, this is the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Uh, It's the same kind of thing, the suffering that comes to us because we are walking in obedience to the will of God. Those are the people who are going to stand with Him when the crisis comes. Now, the disciples failed the first time, but because of God's grace and mercy, he gives them a second chance, doesn't he? Like he does us. Comes looking for us, the good shepherd. And in John 21, Jesus goes looking for those disciples who were out fishing because they didn't know what to do. Then They was confused, and they didn't know what the Lord expected of them. They knew He had risen from the dead. They had seen Him. They had talked with Him, but they didn't know what He expected. So they just went back to the old ways of doing things, and Jesus went looking for them again. And if you read the, the call of Peter in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus initially called him, and then you read John 21, you see that they are very, very much parallel in the location and in the call itself and in the events surrounding that call. Took him right back to the place where he initially met him and called him again. God's grace. In between those two callings was the pruning and the disciplining of walking with Jesus. And so he comes looking for him and calling him again. So what happens is that too often we want to uh, to hide behind our ignorance and say, well, I didn't know, or it's better not to know. Peter talks about people who are willingly ignorant uh, trying to deny the second coming of Christ 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 5 it says that they are deliberately ignorant they deliberately overlook consciously willfully ignore the fact that God is coming again they're saying it's been a long time since God promised to come back and he really doesn't participate in what's happening in this world anymore and Peter says wait a minute that's a deliberate step into the darkness into the ignorance and he reminds them of God's intervention at creation he reminds them of God's judgment at the flood and he says there's coming a day of judgment and that's what they are are wanting to ignore later on in second Peter chapter 3 verse 8 he says I don't want you to be ignorant I don't want you to ignore God's timing is different from ours. He's not slow, but patient, and there's a difference. And he says God's patience, he's patient for a reason, because his patience means salvation for many people, giving time for this vine to grow, giving time for this branch and to become productive. To bear fruit in our lives. Got a great quote from Saul Bellow. He says, A great deal of intelligence can be invested in ignorance when the need for illusion is deep. That was a good quote. A great deal of intelligence can be invested in ignorance when the need for illusion is deep. That's a description of our country right now, investing in ignorance because the need for illusion is deep. And a lot of intelligence, a lot of its sources are consistently, systematically, deliberately doing that in this country right now. And God's at work pruning. He's at work pruning and those who are not going to bear fruit will be cut off and those who are bearing fruit he's going to prune and cleanse and purge so that we can become even more productive in God's kingdom so the writer of Hebrews says when the hardships come look at it as a discipline from God Uh, we can go around and say woe is me what's happening and why is this happening to us but there are lessons that we can learn And it's a call from God for us to live in faith and for that faith to become active in our lives. If the faith isn't active, it's worthless. It does nobody any good. And in order for faith to grow, it has to be challenged. And we are living in challenging times. And that can be good news for us because when we trust in Him, we get to know Him better. And He demonstrates His presence with us if we will trust Him, if we will lean on Him. So the writer of Hebrews says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. So how did He treat His son? In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save Him from death. And He was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. This is Jesus we're talking about, God's son, God in the flesh, in the days of his earthly life, life on earth, offering up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. When was the last time that you were so burdened in prayer that you wept? been a while. So burdened that you wept. Jesus loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and he was heard because of his reverent submission, endurance. That's the word that's used here. Did he die? Yes. Yes. He was heard, didn't keep him from death, but there's a resurrection coming to a life that can never die, fade, perish, and never pass away. Part of the pruning that takes place. And Jesus went through it first to show us it's okay. It's going to be all right. I did this for you, so that you can follow me without fear. Now, Hebrews has already told us that Jesus came to taste death for everyone to free us from the fear of death. We don't have to be afraid because we have a promise of one who's gone before us that he will come back and receive us to himself and we will be with him forever. That's the promise. So here's what happened. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. They had everything to gain by obedience, and they chose sin. They moved from the power of righteousness into the weakness of sin. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing the cross, had everything to lose by obedience, yet he chose to obey. He moved from the weakness of crucifixion To the power of resurrection. And we will follow one or the other. We are in the garden, we are God's garden. He is pruning some of us, He is challenging some of us. Adam and Eve, everything to gain by obedience, that's where we are now as God's children. They chose sin. Jesus, by his obedience, was going to lose everything. And he chose to obey. That's back in what Paul said about himself, wasn't it? Everything that was to my benefit and profit, I got rid of for the sake of Christ. So Hebrews chapter 12, he tells us, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest. That's the fruitfulness that Jesus is talking about in John 15. A harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, writing to the church, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, So that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Even if we are lame, if we are walking this path of obedience, what happens is even as we're walking in obedience, the healing is taking place. We're becoming stronger. We're becoming more whole. We're becoming greater. So this is what Isaiah was talking about. Even the the young will grow weary and tired, but they that wait upon the Lord mount up with wings like eagles they get to the place where they run and they're not weary and they are strong and they do not faint because it's in their weakness they're relying upon the Lord and he's proving himself strong for those who trust him so we're living in days when God is calling countries to repentance and people are investing a lot of Intelligence in ignorance because the need for illusion is deep through the Holy Spirit and through the life of Christ what God is doing is he's taking away the blinders so that we can see the deception so that we'll know where to stand and he's promised to be with us and to use this as a, a thing to strengthen us and make us stronger and provide an opportunity to become more fruitful in the kingdom of God And so he's calling upon us to take those things that are within us that have hindered us, as it says in Hebrews 12, the things that hinder us from walking the way that we know that we should be as God's people. He said, let's lay aside those things following the example of Christ who stood solid and firm in the midst of great difficulty. So what is he here to deliver us from? John 3.16, we know that very well. God loved the world, and he showed it in this way. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict, or this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. And that's why Jesus died on the cross. For us as Christians, because even in the church, many times we love darkness instead of light. Those are the sins that entangle us so easily. And that's what he came to deliver us from. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that because of your love, you discipline us. You prune us, shape us, mold us, get rid of the dead wood, the unproductive parts, the parts that appear good and yet all they do is sap our strength sap our motive, sap our resources on things that only produce death. And through the discipline of your loving pruning, you're separating us from those things. It's painful. It's not a pleasant thing. But what happens, what we gain through that, is maturity, revelation, relationship in a deeper way with you, fellowship with you, and a participation in a life that is a resurrection life that no one can take from us. And for that, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.